Hello and welcome to the SAMOP Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today we're fortunate to have Dr. Hoosey with us. Dr. Hoosey is a psychiatrist who completed his residency in DC as part of the National Capital Consortium. Currently he has his own practice and is an osteopathic manipulative medicine preceptor at Rocky Vista University. How are you today, Dr. Hoosey? Outstanding, thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, I wanna start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, where are you from, what medical school did you attend, where did you go for your residency, et cetera? Well, I was born in Wisconsin and my parents bought and sold motels and hotels, so I moved around a lot, uh, about nine times before I was eight. So I often describe that I had that military brat experience without the support system of the military. I was an only child, and uh, that certainly impressed upon me the impact of frequent moves. I went to Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, pre-AT Still University, and in Kirksville, I really fell in love with the idea of osteopathic manipulative medicine. Now, I had gone to medical school to be a psychiatrist. That's why I tolerated organic chemistry and other unpleasant undergraduate courses like calculus, which I continue to find outrageous that we don't use in medicine at all. And so having gone through that, I, I really fell in love with osteopathic manipulation. And I had a conundrum because here I was on an HPSP scholarship for the Air Force and had committed myself to doing psychiatry, but I knew that in the field of psychiatry, often touch would be considered inappropriate or even prohibited. And so I looked for opportunities that would allow me to develop or at least maintain the hands-on OMT side of practice. And so at the time, there was only one combined residency and family practice in psychiatry in all branches, and it was in D.C. at the National Capital Consortium, and was really a tri-service offering. We had folks who were Army, Air Force, and even Navy and public health at times. And though that program is what I applied to, and that's a five-year program, so psychiatry typically is four, and family practice is typically three, so instead of seven years total, it somehow with fuzzy math comes out to five years. So I completed my five years in DC and uh, then was sent to Japan for my first and last duty station. Can you tell us a little bit about your time in Japan? Ah, Japan was fascinating. Now at the time, and I believe this is still true for the Air Force, there's only around a hundred psychiatrists total. So depending on your specialty, you get little or a lot of exposure to your specialty consultant, as they're called. So it's a physician in your specialty who works with the Surgeon General to find placement and billets for each of the people that serve in that specialty. And I remember meeting with the psychiatry consultant a couple times throughout my five-year residency, and he was explaining to me that the vision of the Air Force and the Surgeon General for a combined trained psychiatry family practice person like myself was to put you in a place where they had a psychiatry billet, but where you could potentially also, if you wanted, serve in the family practice in some capacity, maybe a half a day a week. And Japan, and particularly Yokota Air Base, about an hour outside of Tokyo, was one of those installations. And that uh, I ended up putting on my list 
it was actually 18 out of 20 on my list. And uh, that was partially because my wife was very concerned about being that far from everyone. It's literally, at least from the East Coast of the U.S., where we were at the time, uh, exactly halfway around the world, no matter which way you went, east or west. And we ended up going there. And for the first six months, it was probably the most challenging of my life. Uh, not only clinically, because now I was it. I was it as a psychiatrist. But because of being relatively limited in additional resources, um, it offered a lot of other opportunities that I'll kind of go into later. But also on a personal level for the family, the military, particularly as a medical officer, you kind of have built-in community. You have a support group just by having coworkers. You have something to do. But a family member doesn't necessarily have that. And so that was a real strain on us and our marriage for the first six months. And after that, it became such a blessing to be in Japan. We, it's still our most fondest memories of life together as a family and often wish to return and had DOs or would DOs even now have equal practice rights, we probably would have stayed on as civilians at the very least. How long were you in Japan for? We were stationed there four years and that was an extended year. Typical assignments are three. We extended my last year of commitment after talking to the assignments personnel and they were going to put us somewhere rather boring back in the U.S. And I would quickly be deployed. And so it would be a real rough transition for the family. So instead, we decided to extend the year, stay in Japan. And that has its own challenges with trying to transition out of the military. But we're glad we did. Did you have kids at the time? We did. We had a two-year-old when we moved in PCS to Japan. And my wife was pregnant. And within about six months of landing uh, in country, we had our second daughter, and uh, she was actually born in Japan. And the uh, first daughter had a great experience. We actually sent her to what would be called kind of a Japanese preschool. They call it Yochien. And she had an amazing experience. She actually was fluent in speaking Japan, oh, wow. Japanese, and, and actually understanding it, uh, even though we didn't speak much at home other than some simple phrases. So she has the clearest memories. Unfortunately, my youngest left when she was probably four, maybe three and a half. And so she does not really have much memory of Japan. Do you have any advice for how to overcome those family difficulties when PCSing far away from home? Great question. And, and I don't know if that's that much different for being in the States far away from family, but certainly you can't just take a weekend trip to go visit family, even across the country. You have, a, you have the Atlantic to cross, and that is a huge consideration. It's exhausting. I believe in the time we were there, our biggest support system was our on-base chapel church community. Uh, we participated in small groups and organizational activities as, as a primary outreach, and that led to relationships with other families, and that would lead to maybe dinners with people or community or small groups, and that really was a huge asset for the family. The involvement also with the Japanese community was vital. My daughter's Yochien preschool experience was amazing. And despite the language barrier, the willingness of the school administration and her teachers and even peers, parents, 
how gracious and outgoing they were to us has left a mark on our soul that makes us smile every day. And they, they were so welcoming and encouraging. And so many of our friendship activities were with Japanese nationals uh, that were parents of peers of our daughter. And that has been a great experience. So getting involved in the community would be number one. It was often remarkable to me to see people as the base psychiatrist, how isolated people would choose to be. The base was big, but it certainly was not that big. And to stay isolated on base when you could literally drive through the front gate and be in another world was remarkable. And how few people would avail themselves of that at times was really remarkable to me. So that, that involvement in the community that you're in, even if you're in, the, in a U.S. installation, reaching out to the community around you, whether that be in activities, uh, that might be a sport or maybe a cultural activity in that community, and certainly when you're in another world doing that as well, it just is so valuable. So those are probably the two things we did to make it survivable and even thrivable. That's awesome. Thank you so much for um, for sharing that. So to backtrack a little bit, why did you decide to become a physician? So my introduction to medicine came, I would say, sometime in my sophomore year in high school. And at that time, I was impressed upon by three factors. One is I had an interest in, in, in psychology. And in high school, there was an elective course, and I took a psychology class. The second influence was a very infamous movie with Jack Nicholson called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I remember watching that movie and thinking, wow, I could probably do better than that as a, as a psychiatrist caring for someone. And then the final influence was I have a half-sister who I was not raised with, but herself had had and still has a severe mental illness somewhere probably on the schizophrenic spectrum. And seeing her as a high-functioning individual who's married with three young kids have her first episode of psychosis and subsequent repeat episodes and spending almost 10 years in inpatient institutions cumulatively, losing her marriage, uh, kids going and, and kind of growing up without her subsequent to that was really heartbreaking in, in watching that. And so those three factors motivated me to consider medicine and I guess maybe a fourth factor is I'm the son of an immigrant. So my father, who immigrated from Ukraine following World War II, he, he, he would often tell me that, uh, Teddy, you must be doctor, lawyer, or CEO of business. And so I didn't really have much interest in business. I really wasn't interested in law, so that left me being a doctor. Coincidentally, I actually like psychiatry as well, so that at least... Uh, comforted him when I was an undergrad that I was going to go down that road. Awesome. Thank you. So why did you decide to join the Air Force? So in high school, uh, probably since maybe even middle, middle, middle school, but certainly freshman year in high school, my thought was, I want to go to the Air Force Academy and I want to be a pilot. And maybe or maybe not, I was influenced by the movie Top Gun. I'm not going to say, and yes, I know that's Navy flyers. But the idea of the Air Force Academy was very attractive to me. And then sometime late in my freshman year, beginning of sophomore year, my eyesight went and I just needed glasses. And at that time, that meant you couldn't be a pilot. 
And so I looked for alternatives. And at that point, I just kind of had let go of the military. And I was thinking about becoming a physician. When I was in college and as part of normal health advisor, pre-med advisor counseling, they discussed the HPSP program. And I realized, wow, I still have a chance to serve, which is something that is very important to me. And I can be in the Air Force as a physician. That seemed like a win-win for me. And that was the road I then decided to pursue. And is there anything that you don't like about psychiatry? And what do you like about psychiatry? Hmm. I think I'll start with what I like. I like in psychiatry that, as I tell the students who've rotated with me, in psychiatry, I never have the same day twice. Now, I may have many depressed patients or manic patients or psychotic patients in a day, but the fact that no two depressed scenarios and stories are the same. In fact, no two depressed patients are gonna to respond to treatment the same way. So it keeps it fresh, challenging, and new each day in clinic. And that's probably my, my, my most favorite thing about psychiatry. Probably the, the, one of the things I like the least in psychiatry is what American psychiatry has become. For the entire time I've practiced, over 20 years, it has been the standard that in American psychiatry, polypharmacy is the norm. I often describe that it feels as if, oh, if there's a receptor, we need to saturate it for no other reason than we think it might help. And you contrast that with, say, a European or even Australian model, which is really European. And that idea is single agents gradually increase to max dose. If failure in succeeding in treatment, you switch to a new single agent. You work your way through. And you really exhaust those before you go to polypharmacy. And that part is, is certainly one of the parts I like least about it, is that as a very conservative psychiatrist following more of that European model, because of my osteopathic perspective influence in my care, I see that as so, so delineating between American practice and what I do. The second aspect I find in psychiatry that's really discouraging and really wasn't made aware to me until I did the combined residency or as I was going through it, that many psychiatrists have absolutely forgotten or forsaken their medical knowledge after their intern year. And part of that is inherent in what a psychiatry residency does. They really stop a lot of clinical rotations outside of psychiatry after that first year. And so it, in on a psychiatry ward or certainly in an outpatient clinic, the psychiatrists have gotten into a habit that seems to be a standard of care to basically refer to an internist or a family practice doc for everything and have only a focus on the psych meds they're doing. And what I observed in residency and still see to this day is kind of a specialty specific ignorance. For example, when atypical antipsychotics, second generation antipsychotics came out, it was quite normal uh, to see psychiatrists even to this day who did not bother to check a weight, to check a blood sugar, to check a cholesterol level, despite the well-described side effect and cautionary statements by the FDA for each of those drugs, they weren't dutifully monitoring them. And so I would see patients on my family practice side that were being managed by a psychiatrist somewhere else in another installation who 
we're giving people diabetes. We're giving people high cholesterol that I was trying to manage. And not necessarily that they needed to get rid of the antipsychotic because maybe the person had a legitimate condition like bipolar or schizophrenia. However, there was almost like a convenient blinders that people were putting on to not have to address the whole person. And we're kind of, in my mind, a bit negligent about the effects of what treatment they were providing and not really owning them. And those, that would be kind of that other aspect of psychiatry that is discouraging to me is the, the forsaking of the whole of medicine in the practice of psychiatry. That certainly isn't exclu uh, unique to every psychiatrist, but it does seem to be the majority, at least, that I've interacted with. Okay. Have you found that there is a difference between psychiatry in theory versus psychiatry in practice? Wow. Uh, yes, in some ways. For example, on the, on the one hand, theoretically, every psychiatrist knows that the cholesterol and blood sugars and weight and waist circumference should be monitored in patients, like I mentioned, on an antipsychotic. Yet the practice is they're not doing it. Um, they also would say that medications only have so much efficacy in treating psychiatric conditions and a combined approach, particularly with cognitive behavioral therapy or certain other evidence-based therapies are the best treatment approach, yet many of those psychiatrists never do psychotherapy at all. They become psychopharmacologists exclusively. So there's that theory and practice divide. The other side is a concept that's very near and dear to my heart as an osteopathic physician who does manipulation in my practice that this prohibition of touch in psychiatry that is uniformly blanketed as therapeutic and appropriate comes out of a psychodynamic paradigm. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, there are probably less than 1% of psychiatrists, MD or DO, that are trained psychoanalysis providers who even do psychodynamic work at all. And yet this aphysical approach, which is really something from psychoanalysis, has been pervasively applied to the profession, the specialty, with no real good reason. And so I, I, I see this practice that's not matching the theory because they're adhering to this one aspect of, say, psychoanalytic or psychodynamic thought, but they're really not adhering or applying any of the other aspects of that theory. And so it's, it just really never made sense to me. Thankfully, as a DO, our history of OMT or particularly unique osteopathic approach in the field of psychiatry has really been there from the days of AT still. He has case reports in his couple books that have been published about people who were having some sort of psychiatric issue, whether it was depression or anxiety or potentially psychosis, where he addressed the structural system and saw improvement in those symptoms, amongst others. And that led, of course, to the Stillhouser Sanatorium in, in 1915 opening in Macon, Missouri which is the first osteopathic psychiatric facility. So those, those kind of dichotomies in, in theory and practice have always kind of befuddled me. And certainly I have uh, attempted to stand in a direct contrast to that. So I'm very grateful for my family practice and psychiatry combined training because I really came out as a hybrid. I don't think like a primary care doc and I don't think like a straight psychiatrist. I really look at things in a, by default, because of a generalist blending with a specialist, I look in a very comprehensive way 
which is very convenient as an osteopathic physician. Have you found that there's a significant difference between inpatient versus outpatient psych? Yes, and that has stayed about the same, if not maybe gotten a little more narrow in my years of practice. It has always been, certainly by the time I came through the ranks in med school and residency, the days of two months, six months on an inpatient unit were long gone. Stuff that my sister that I had observed uh, go through uh, were long gone. Now, managed care was the norm, and days were limited to days, not weeks. And those days were often based purely on maximizing saturating receptors by loading on multiple medications at a time, and, and that still is the practice now. And if the patient... Uh, being reported to be improved in the shortest three to five days, when in, in most cases the medications haven't even reached a steady state then, let alone efficacy, that uh, that continues to be the norm and drives inpatient treatment. Now, outpatient has has also stayed the same and, and changed. One is that outpatient, of course, is where you see more chronicity, you see more long-term care. And that really came out of a necessity that most people don't realize is a byproduct of the Kennedy administration. So President Kennedy had a vision to get or deinstitutionalize the inpatient asylums that were in each state at the time, and sometimes multiple in each state. And in many cases, those were not great places. And the idea was you could provide better care, more comprehensive care in the community. So they called it community-based mental health care. And that was part of the deinstitutionalization package. The problem was, is that when they shut down the institutions, there weren't as many inpatient places for acute people. But you have to realize, just like someone with mental retardation, they're not going to get better. They are going to have a deficit lifelong. And schizophrenia is a chronic condition fraught with relapse and further progressive deterioration. So the idea of someone somehow being able to relatively function in community for those kind of conditions is ignorant. And what happened when the deinstitutionalization happened is that the community mental health centers were not nearly prevalent enough or staffed adequately enough. And so people ended up getting no care. And in fact, the 1960s when that got implemented, was really where we saw this huge surge in the homeless population. And it stayed that way since then, that a third of homeless people are the chronic mental ill, including schizophrenia and so forth. And that remains this day, and I would conjecture probably because of the deinstitutionalization effect. So outpatient care has, has certainly expanded since the 60s and has develop some semblance of community-based systems. They certainly aren't state-run and more independent organization-run, and that's probably better than a state-run version. The other thing that's been real interesting is can, uh, certain treatment approaches like classically psychoanalysis have always been fee-for-service, paid out-of-pocket, no insurance covering them. And I just saw a recent analysis in Medscape, they do every year, about the percent of psychiatrists that are on insurance panels versus cash upfront self-pay patients. And that number keeps to, keeps increasing on the self-pay side every year. And now I think it's two-thirds are self-pay and a third are on insurance panels, 
which means for those that rely on insurance, there are very few providers and they are being asked to either wait, which is very common, say in the VA system and certainly Medicaid, Medicare provider systems. But then those, those fee for service or pay for cash psychiatrists, it's not that they're just money hungry. What they are tired of is what every physician is tired of, managed care dictating what care can provide, be provided and to what level. And certainly very few can, physicians who are practicing in managed systems, whether they work for someone like Kaiser or are taking insurance, very few of them would say, as I've spoken with them, that they're really practicing the type of medicine that they were trained to do and to the level that they think is what they should be doing because of those limitations. So the, the outpatient experience of cash pay patients frees you from that kind of untoward negative guidance that managed care can provide. It does come with its own risk though. As we sit in my private practice space doing the interview, it is empty. <laughs> and I have one day a week that I get to see patients here and I have to find alternative employment to fill the rest of that week. Thank God I've got that opportunity, but it is something that every cash pay has to be concerned about. Certainly it, the, the money issue doesn't go in the way with the managed care side, but um, you replace them having your time filled and getting paid less. And that ends up exhausting you and leading to burnout more likely. What do you think the solution to that is? So in our practice, we thought about this many years ago and we have a faith-based practice. And so the idea of a tithe, 10%, was very novel to us. And I've, I've since heard of people applying this, but- 10% of what's Oh, so 10% in, in the biblical term, you, whatever money you earn, you give 10% back to, in the Bible tradition, the temple. And the idea in a practice is, well, me giving 10% of my income from the clinic when I don't have that many patients, doesn't really do much. So what we did originally is we would give 10% of our clinical time to a sliding fee scale, which included people paying nothing. And so my argument would be if every physician, and heck, even every medical provider, so mid-levels included, if every physician gave 10% of their work week to, so let's just think about that, a 40-hour work week, four hours a week, let's say a half a day a clinic, would go to the low-income people who can't afford it. We might be able to get rid of something like a Medicare, Medicaid system, which has turned out to be quite a train wreck, and still provide quality care for people. Because the 90% of your week is potentially covering the payment for that. And that would certainly go a long way to relieving it if we could implement that voluntarily throughout the whole country. Do you think it's on providers to give that 10% or should the government Mandated? regulate it? Yeah. If, <laughs> having worked in the military, the largest bureaucratic organization on the planet for the U.S., I would say regulation is for certain things, but trying to motivate a provider, a clinician, a physician to do great work if you try to regulate it, you're not going to get it. In fact, we've seen that with the result of Medicaid and Medicare providing systems. Okay. So speaking of the military, you mentioned the VA earlier. How do you think that the VA handles 
any type of like psychiatric illnesses or VA system, so no longer active duty. Or both. Um, Well, let me start with the VA since you started with that. It has been variable over the years. And I think if I were honest, there are certain VAs, and I hear this from veterans themselves because I do the compensation pension exams, the VA's equivalent of the disability exam. And I do those every week for veterans. And so I'm hearing about where they're getting care in the country, where they've had a good experience, where they've had a poor experience. And certainly here in Colorado, I don't hear good things. And uh, the average to see a psychiatrist in a VA clinic is once every six months to once a year. That's inadequate. They're trying to do psychotherapy with a social worker or a psychologist once a month, also inadequate. And that really hasn't fluctuated in the time we've been here in Colorado. But I have had reports from veterans from other other states and other clinics that are able to get in weekly, that have had great experience with their providers. So it certainly isn't uniform. I myself, being a veteran, did not have any conditions qualifying for VA disability. So I'm not rated with the VA. But I do, as I said, these exams for folks all the time. And having attempted to work for the VA directly, I can tell you that I spent nine months in processing. And after that nine months, the only thing I had successfully done was completed whatever online training I had to do and I had a VA employee ID card, and I still wasn't seeing veterans for psychiatric compensation and pension exams. And so I contacted the department I was working with for all that, and I said, you know, as a veteran, this is absurd. I I can't imagine. I know you have the need. I can't imagine why it is taking this long to get me to see people. And that was, that left a real clear taste in my mouth. And the certainly aspects of, of large bureaucratic organizations that are government-run, like the VA, like the military, like government agencies in general, they get mired down in procedure and other red tape. And so that has become the norm for these systems. And so I, I really have concern for veterans. Thank God I don't have a condition that I have to rely on the VA to get treatment in. And... Um, Certainly, if you can ask around, and I know there's lots of veteran forums, find a town or city where the VA is exceptional, then I might even consider moving there if I had that kind of scenario. Um, Military-wise, that's been an interesting development in my time. I spent nine years total in active duty, and then I worked three years as a civilian psychiatrist at Fort Carson. So ongoing care of primarily active duty there. In those 12 years, I can say that I did see some expansion of mental health services, some destigmatizing of going for help, but even to this day, I still hear it on, on the VA exams that I do that people didn't want to go in because of the stigma. And there's still that balance. Here in Colorado, Fort Carson in 2008, had a handful of suicides and murders from 4th ID soldiers that had come back from deployment and were not doing well. And that response, the department at the time, I think had certainly under 50 mental health personnel total, including counselors, providers, techs, administration. And by the time I moved here in 2010, 
that department had doubled to 100. And by the time I left three years later, it was over 200. So they're trying to provide greater resources. But the, the difficulty is this. If we look at a country like Israel, military service is mandatory, obligatory, and you're signal, single. You do it right out of high school. So you don't have a family issue to deal with. And what comes of that is a very interesting result because you don't have very many career soldiers or, or sailors. You just have people who serve for that time, kind of like in Switzerland. And then you have this theoretically infinite number of reserve personnel that can be mobilized if needed in a conflict. And you have very few folks who are going to be exposed to long-term service and the burden that is on them and their family. And certainly if we could find some hybrid way of doing that in America, it would possibly decrease some of that mental health burden because it's really hard to be a present father or a present husband when you're deployed or a present mom or a present uh, wife when you're deployed. But it's even harder when you're a single one of those who's got a kid or is trying to establish a dating relationship to maybe have a long-term relationship, that the military resources, while there's lots of vocalizing about family support and, and marital support and child support, it ultimately falls on the active duty member to have their plan in place of who's gonna take care of stuff when they're off fighting the war and potentially get killed. And that, that distancing repeatedly through deployments, that reliance that at the when the decision comes, your family is second, is a big burden on anyone. And, and I see that often in the care that we do. So that, that has not improved that much in the time I've seen. You mentioned that you were a base psychiatrist when you were in Japan. Can you tell me a little bit about like what kinds of things you would see and what sort of things your patients would, would suffer from? So Yokota Air Base, which is again about an hour outside of Japan, actually is a fascinating base. It was a large Japanese air base in World War II that the U.S. forces appropriated following their, the Japanese defeat. And in the time between then and when I showed up on base around 2005, the Japan Self-Defense Forces also had a headquarters on that base. And so Yokota had not only its base command, but it also housed the Japan Self-Defense Force headquarters, and it housed the headquarters of what was called uh, U.S. Forces Japan, and that was a huge organization that saw all services that were assigned in either mainland Japan or Okinawa. And that was, it was a very influential base to be on. The average number, I believe, at the time was about 11,500 people on base that I was ultimately responsible for as the only psychiatrist. 11,500? And that included active duty, family members, uh, GS civilian servant uh, employees, as well as contractors. So that's a lot of people. And I would jokingly refer to as being as being a base psychiatrist with that many people, I was basically the speed bump between that person and mental illness. And that there wasn't a whole lot I could prevent because there wasn't a lot of resources. 
The typical stuff we would see, or I would see as the psychiatrist, would be certainly people who are family members who are on relatively stable medication psychiatrically, certainly new onset severe psychiatric conditions amongst the active duty population, so bipolar, schizophrenia, first episode, psychotic breaks, and so forth. Um, and then as well, I would potentially have contractors or retirees who lived in Japan proper but had their care on on base. Uh, I had several folks in that category as well. And in some of those cases, they were some of the most challenging patients because maybe they had chronic bipolar or they had a chronic mental illness like PTSD. But here they are, a retiree living in Japan in the community and having their own unique challenges in, in being in a different country of nationality to interface with. The biggest challenge I would say clinically was when you had one of those acute cases. Someone needed a psychiatric hospitalization. Now we had a very small couple floor hospital on Yakota that was, uh, had a medical ward, had a surgical ward, and then the rest of the building was administrative, ER and outpatient surgery operations. And there was no psychiatric facility. And so if someone needed to be psychiatrically hospitalized, they would be put in the hospital, the unit would be required to have a sitter there 24-7 to make sure the person didn't flee or hurt themselves, which really put the unit buddy system under strain every time. And then it would be on the mental health team, say if it was me as the psychiatrist who had admitted them, I would then have to work with the Air Force's medical evacuation system, which in the Pacific is launched out of Hawaii. And so... The command for getting an AeroVac in the air is a very difficult process because I think they would often quote me, the average is like $400,000 to fly the bird anytime. And so here I am flying a bird for one person to come all the way to Japan, pick them up and fly them back to Hawaii to be hospitalized or maybe California. And having those conversations with medical personnel, but part of the medical evacuation system was always strained because it seemed every time it came up, there was some new arbitrary requirement, one that you may have seen maybe on a psychiatric ward. These, these uh, what do they call them? No harm contracts. Now, hopefully you've rotated in a psychiatric facility that has born the benefit of evidence-based medicine and shown that these no harm contracts have no value in preventing someone from harming themselves and we don't do them anymore. And that was true in 2005 as well. But this medevac system wanted us to get this signed by the suicidal, psychotic, whatever, psychiatric patient before they would commit to the flight. And I said, this is meaningless. And having that kind of battle every time was really challenging. And 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 understandably, you can't just flush $400,000 down the drain any time willy-nilly. You have to have some sort of guidance in place. But when you're dealing with someone who, on the other end, isn't really appreciating the scenario and realizing that I don't have a Japanese hospital I can send them to because... Japan's standard of care for psychiatric hospitals was far lower than a U.S. standard. And I'm in Japan. And when I have a family member or I have a, 
contractor, I've got to uphold the U.S. equivalent, and I can't just ship them off to a Japanese, unless they wanted to go. But I, that was, I can't think of one time where that happened. And so that was very difficult. As far as interesting jobs, working in Japan on the base as the only psychiatrist. Part of your military training will often include some exposure to the idea of being a command consultant. So regardless of what specialty of medicine, a unit commander needs to rely on the medical services available on that base or post to provide guidance in management of their personnel regarding whatever the medical condition is. And so I was often called by commanders about personnel issues, sometimes their spouse issues, saying, I don't really know if this is legit, am I just getting played with here, or is this really significant mental illness? And so basically those, what we might call a curbside consult, wasn't with another medical person, it's with a a non-medical commander that you're trying to have a dialogue with to determine, is this something that rises to a level of maybe a, a, a command-directed medical evaluation to involuntary hospitalization, or maybe a disciplinary pathway, like a, a UCMJ action, like an Article 15, versus a chapter separation for a specific mental illness or a medical condition, or a medical board. And so having those negotiations and discussions with commanders was something that I haven't had in my training in residency, thankfully. I don't know how much of that was because of the residency or the very nature of where I was in DC, that it was a very involved kind of community, but it served me well. The other aspects that were great that I had not anticipated were as a captain, newly graduated after five years of residency, I'm relatively a nobody. But when I show up on base as the only psychiatrist within three hours by car or a seven to nine hour plane flight, you suddenly become valuable. So I would be mandated to participate in court martial hearings as either support for the defense or support for the prosecution. Now, I am not a forensic psychiatrist, but guess what? I was it. And I had those opportunities. In fact, <laughs> I remember serving on the defense's side and the prosecution, this is a court-martial case for potential malingering, which is basically feigning your symptoms intentionally with the intent of avoiding a consequence, in this case, legal action. And when the, the prosecution flew in their civilian hired gun forensic psychiatrist, who did it happen to be? But a psychiatrist I had rotated under at Wilford Hall in San Antonio as a third-year medical student. He was a, he at the time was an active duty Air Force psychiatrist, but he had since either separated or retired. And he and I are having lunch, and he's just telling me about what life was like. And I said, wow, they're paying you that many thousands of dollars a day to come here. Do you know how much they pay in me? my salary. <laughs> so it's a surreal experience. And the last thing I really enjoyed about being in Japan clinically was about an hour away was the equivalent of our uniform services military medical school uses. The, the Japanese self-defense force has their own medical school as well. And they were about an hour away, and we began a partnership with them because we were the closest U.S. military base. And so 
there was a time where they needed a military perspective on deployment at their Japanese national, not just military, but the Japanese National Disaster Conference. I mean, these, this is a country that deals with earthquakes regularly. And this conference was attended by people from all over the Pacific Rim, from other countries as well as Japan. And there I was speaking through a translator about what we do in deployment settings. By the way, I had never been deployed, and I'm a captain less than a year out of residency. So it was such a surreal experience. And after that presentation, the colonel who ran the medical school for the Japanese, he had us back to his office. The, the, the hospital commander and I had gone to this talk. And so, you know, he's a colonel, the hospital commander's a colonel, I'm this lowly little captain. And he's breaking out Japanese beer and snacks, and we're just having this great chat with a couple of the other medical people from the school. You just don't get those opportunities outside of a military setting because in the civilian world, there's always an expert who's done that for 30 or 40 years that's a better available source than, than what you have on hand. But in those military settings, you become a highly valuable source simply because you're the only one. Oh, thank you so much. Unfortunately, I only have time for one or two more questions. Okay. Ultimately, did you find your time in the military fulfilling? Did you feel like you made a difference in people's lives, even though you had that bureaucratic red tape and you were the only psychiatrist for thousands of potential patients? I'm going to answer that by answering a question I saw earlier we didn't go through okay. about how, how did I find serving the military and the military patient? Because... For those that are aware of it, as a military physician, doesn't matter what specialty, your first duty, unlike everything we've been taught in medical school, is not to the patient, mm -hmm. but to your service. Because ultimately, you are trying to determine if this soldier, seaman, airman, is appropriate to continue in their duty, whether it's low risk or high risk. Each, each service member needs to be able to function in capacity. Otherwise, other people can suffer, including death. And that is a big burden to wear. Some, many physicians leave the military because of that conflict between what we've been taught in med school. I was okay understanding that as my primary duty. I counseled my patients appropriately to that. But I still found that very infrequently did duty to service mean I had to consider the patient's condition lesser. In the, in the overwhelming, you know, 99% of the time, it, taking care of my patient's issue, whatever it was they brought to me, did the service that I was under the best benefit as well. And on those rare times for people who are on high visibility and security level jobs, like in the Air Force, the missileers, and people who manage the nukes, people who have presidential support, all those organizations, those often don't have much wiggle room. It has a, it has a great benefit, though, when you can help someone. And I think in the end, I did feel I was helping people. One of the reasons I had to leave, not only active duty, but ultimately I left even the civilian work working with the Army, was the feeling that family wasn't a priority, and it was to me. 
and I had to make a decision. Was I going to try to pit, fit the square peg in the round hole and shave off parts of my family by doing that, by continuing in uniform? And then when I got out, I saw that on the Army side as a civilian that I felt like a lot of the work I was doing was ultimately going to be overturned and, and potentially reversed by the fact that the person was going to have to function in an environment that just couldn't have that compensation available. Whether that was, you know, do you think you could let them sleep for seven hours? No guarantee on that. You think maybe uh, you could change their duty, maybe reassign their shift work so that they're actually home and their wife and kids see them? Not necessarily. And those would often lead to whether someone needed a medical board or chapter, depending on the condition. So those were harder and harder to see. And I imagine that's kind of why a lot of people say they don't go into pediatrics or child adolescent psychiatry is because they love the kids, but it's the parents that drive them crazy. And that's kind of how the military can feel at times, because the parent in this scenario is mm -hmm. the command of each service member. Okay. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are up with time. So that wraps up our episode with Dr. Husey today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. And thank you for tuning in.